speak to us, we pray. May we hear from you. May our hearts and our minds be receptive to all that you want to say as we wait on you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we talked about chocolate. For those who know me, you'll know that's my favorite thing in all the world. Um, I saw this this week. I'm giving up eating chocolate for a month. Uh, sorry, bad punctuation. I'm giving up. <laughs> I'm eating chocolate for a month. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's me all over, especially in Lent. Oh, dear. Don't even talk about it. <laughs> so enjoy your chocolate, ladies. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it, how the meaning of something can change just by the way we take our breath or where we put a comma, where we punctuate which doesn't really have much to do with our, our subject this morning. I just liked it. <laughs> wanted to share it with you. Um, but we are going to um, be reading some words that Jesus spoke to his disciples that have often been misinterpreted, have often been misunderstood. Um, so it's going to be interesting as we unpack this passage today uh, to make sure we take a breath, put a comma in the right place. So we've been thinking, for those who've been with us over the past uh, few weeks, about reaching out, about going and sharing our faith where we live. Jesus' command to go and make disciples, we've heard again, uh, not just for those who are called to go overseas, like people who've worked with Edith's Hope, but we've been called to share the good news here, where we are. And we've been reminded that we need to do that with integrity, that our lives have got, got to match up to the words that we use that our claims of God's grace need to be demonstrated to, by, to others by the way that we live. And um, today we're coming to think about how we respond to those in need. How do we let our actions speak in how we live as Christians? So I want to begin by reading our passage, which is in Matthew 25. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to, to um, turn it on or open it. Um, I'm going to read from verse uh, 31 of chapter 25. Probably familiar words, but not easy words to hear this morning. The sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. 
I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He'll reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Well, it's a scene that Jesus is describing here. It's not really a parable, but it follows a series of parables that Jesus has been sharing with his disciples in response to a question, and a question you'll find back in chapter 24. The disciples want to know what the signs will be that Jesus is coming again. They want to know what the end of age, um, about this end of the age that, that he's been speaking about. So Jesus speaks of signs to look out for that will indicate that he's coming back again. But he's very clear that the day or the hour aren't known, that they're going to happen. He's going to come back without any warning. And therefore, we need to be ready. But in chapter 25 here of what we just uh, read, Jesus is explaining what his disciples must do as they wait for his return. And I think this is the key to our passage. This is uh, about what we do while we're waiting for Jesus to return. It's not about how we avoid judgment. It's about what we do while we're waiting. And that's all of us, isn't it? So it's relevant to us. So it is a bit like the chocolate. I had to get it in there somewhere. But it is about how we understand the passage, which is really important. It depends where you put good deeds. Are they for our salvation or are they motivated by our salvation? If this is about what we do while we're waiting, we're called to let our actions speak. So how are you at waiting, I wonder? Some of us hate it, don't we? Some of us waste, waste it, waste waiting time, and some of us make use of it. Well, Jesus tells his disciples in the two parables that we're not reading, the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents, they're both aimed at helping his disciples to navigate this waiting between his going and his returning. So the virgins that you read about, they were ready on his return because they were wise in the way that they waited. And the servants that you read about in the talents, they received their master's approval because they used the time wisely while he was away. So throughout this discourse that Jesus has with his disciples, he's calling them to be active and to be ready. So what does Jesus' description of final judgment, the the bit that we've read about the story of the sheep and the goats, what does that teach us about how we wait for Jesus to come back again? Well, before we get to that really crucial bit about um, the the very famous words of Jesus, I just want to unpack because Jesus refers to himself in three different ways at the beginning of this passage, the son of man, um, the the king and the shepherd. So I just want to unpack a bit about what they mean because I think that helps us to understand the passage that we're coming to. So the first one is the Son of Man. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And he often does this in the Gospels. In fact, it's his favorite way to talk about himself, the Son of Man. And you get from the sense of that, don't you, that Jesus is really keen to identify with us as humans. He wants to identify with our humanity. And it also demonstrates his humility as well, his servant heart, his letting go of the glory of heaven 
and becoming like us, a son of man. But it's also a term that um, Jesus has taken from Daniel to identify himself with the one that's described there. This person that is described is somehow human and divine, according to Daniel. And, and he won't be recognized as the Messiah, yet he is the one who is going to sit there on Judgment Day and be at the center of all that's happening. Now, many of the Jews would have picked up on that. We wouldn't, particularly on this phrase, the Son of Man. But what Jesus is saying here is that he is the Son of Man and he will come one day as judge and as king, glorious in his majesty and in his splendor, unmistakable, which will be very different from the way he came the first time when he came as a tiny baby and very few people recognized who he was. And then Jesus the King. Jesus has a very clear message here that we're, we're not really focusing on, but we can't ignore, that Jesus is coming back again as King of glory. I wonder if you can imagine, if I read verse 31 to you again, if you can just even begin to imagine what this is like. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Can you imagine, not a tiny baby anymore, but a king coming, every eye will see him. We can't even begin to imagine, surrounded by millions of angels in all his glory, Jesus is coming back. Just even begin to try, I can't get your head around it. But I wonder if that's how we think of Jesus. If I say Jesus to you, what do you think of? Do you think of him in all of his glory? I have to confess, I probably don't. A lot of the time I think of him as crucified, resurrected. But do I think of him as glorified, as king over all? Because Jesus emptied himself, didn't he? Philippians 2 tells us that. Took on the form of a human. He emptied himself of his glory, we're told, to become like us and to bear the cross for us. But in John 17, when Jesus prays before he dies, he says that when his mission is complete, God will give him back the glory that he had from the beginning. So here Jesus comes, no longer availed in that obscurity as he did as a tiny baby, but he comes again, and none of us, no one, We'll be able to miss him this time. No one will be able to ignore his coming as king. Jesus is coming as king. But Jesus is already king. He's already king now. And we who trust in Jesus were invited to live out those kingdom values of our king as we wait for his return. And then the other phrase that Jesus uses is Jesus the shepherd. Well, that's a familiar one, isn't it, for all of us? I love Psalm 23. I imagine a lot of you do my favorite psalm, thinking about how Jesus cares for us as his sheep, how he protects us, he rescues us, feeds us. But here the shepherd fulfills another role. Because in, in Palestine, um, sheep and goats were out grazing in the fields together, out on the hills together during the day. But as night fell, the shepherd would go out and he'd take time to separate, separate out the sheep from the goats and put them in different pens for the night. And this, for Jesus, is helping us to see in this passage that there are two sets of people, the sheep and the goats, the blessed and the cursed. And the thing is, that I found really interesting, is that you could hardly tell them apart, the sheep and the goats, during the day when they were out on the fields. Even the shepherd wouldn't necessarily be able to distinguish them. They looked so similar from a distance. It's interesting that the sheep and the goats had the same opportunities, the same experiences, good and bad. And you know, when Jesus comes again, he's going to make clear what isn't necessarily clear to us now. Jesus will know who are his 
and they'll be separated out from those who don't know him. Two eternities, Jesus tells us, eternal life or eternal punishment. I wrote down, how does that sit with you? It's not comfortable, is it? It's not what you perhaps expected to hear on Mothering Sunday. How does that sit with you? It's the truth that Jesus speaks of here in this description. It's not something we talk about much. It's not something we say out loud, is it? We don't like to think of Jesus as judge, as the shepherd who separates the sheep from the goat. We'd rather think of him as the son of man, wouldn't we? Or the king, even, or the shepherd. We'd rather focus on his love and his compassion. But Jesus doesn't beat about the bush like we do. He, ho- he calls us to hold this fact that this judgment day is coming, this opportunity is coming, this time is coming, and we must be ready and bear it in mind as we wait for him to come back. So here we go. We're going to look at now, with that as the context, to think about these words. Because I think they form a a foundation for us to understand the criteria that we're going to look at that Jesus uses to decide who goes to the right and who goes to the left. Because you see, when we think about the gospel, we, we recognize that Jesus says, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we've heard it from this platform again and again, all through Galatians, haven't we? That you can't add anything to the amazing offer of grace that is on the table for us. It's freely given. Ephesians, Paul says, not by works so that no one can boast. That is the truth of our gospel. But then let's listen to the words of Jesus here in verse 34 again. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you visited me. It would seem from this passage that the righteous are invited into God's blessing because they fed the hungry because they quenched the thirst thirst of those who were thirsty. They befriended the stranger. They clothed the naked. They looked after the sick. They visited those in prison. It's hard, isn't it? But I think Jesus is saying something much deeper here, don't you? And we need to hold these things in tension. We need to be careful where we put our commas. Because somehow, Jesus himself is the one being served here. Jesus says that when you met the needs of one of these people, it's as if you were meeting my needs. When you fed the hungry, when you gave water to the thirsty, I was the one that you were helping. I wonder, would it change our response if every time we struggled in ourselves to find it hard to serve somebody or to meet somebody's need, that we saw the face of Jesus in the face of the one in front of us. Some of those Uh, child-headed families, gosh, could you see Jesus in the face of those children that's so desperately in need? The people Jesus is speaking to, the ones on his right, did you notice how amazed they were, how surprised they were? But they they hadn't seen Jesus, had they? They'd just been doing what he'd called them to do, and they were surprised that he asked that question. Jesus' um, response implies that whenever they did something for one of 
their brothers and sisters in Christ is the words he, he uses. If they do, when they did something for one of their brothers and sisters in Christ, then they did it for him. And I find this interesting because I think if we interpret Jesus' words here to mean our brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters in Christ, then what does that mean for us? Does it mean supporting people like Edith Hope that are meeting the needs of the, of the least? Perhaps it does. Perhaps it means supporting those who are suffering in other countries because of their faith. You know, those who are in poverty or in persecution or in prison are hungry and thirsty because they choose to follow Jesus. We stand with them. We see Jesus in them. Galatians 10 kind of backs this up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are in the family of believers. So if Jesus is referring to our brothers and sisters in Christ, then what does it mean for us as a church family to love and to serve one another who bring it right home? What does it mean to help those in our church family who are suffering and in need, loving and caring for one another in a way that's sacrificial, that thinks of the other before ourselves, especially the least? I think as we live out um, these many verses, you, there are hundreds of them, aren't there, in the, in the Bible of um, love one another, serve one another, carry one another's burdens. If we live that out, then our actions will speak. I think then we will demonstrate to our community and to the culture around us that we have lives that have been transformed by grace because we'll be showing the good news of Jesus in the way that we live as a community and the way that we care and serve and love one another will show that we live under the rule of our amazing King Jesus. So Jesus is our example in all of this, isn't it? While we wait for Jesus to return, while we wait for our King and seek to live out his kingdom values, then we seek to be like our King. Because as we look at the life of Jesus, we see the love that he had for the weak, for the poor, for the marginalized, for the hungry, for those who are imprisoned, we see Jesus living out what he's calling for us. And it, it reminded me of the words in John where Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the years of, year of the Lord's favor. Sounds awfully like the actions that Jesus is noticing in those, um, in those righteous people, isn't it? The ones that he commends. And I think it's amazing that they're so surprised that they didn't even think about it. They had, it was so second nature for these people, these righteous people, that they didn't even think about what they, did, that they were doing. They just did it so naturally. And I was challenged uh, recently, we as ministers went on a, a course called Equality and Diversity. And they brought up this phrase, unconscious bias. I don't know if you've heard of the phrase unconscious bias, but I looked up the dictionary definition for you. An unfair belief about a group of people that you are not aware of and that affects your behavior and decisions. It's an unfair belief about a group of people that you're not aware that you have this and it affects your behavior and decisions. I was so challenged about my unconscious bias. Where in my life? Is there unconscious bias that I carry that I need to notice and deal with? In other words, um, to think about how unaware I am, really, of the way I might think or behave towards others, because it's so ingrained in me, I just don't notice it anymore. It's a challenge. I encourage you to go and think about unconscious bias. 
um, deal with it, try and deal with it, get others to point it out in you. But here, I want to kind of flip it on its head, if you'll forgive me. And um, I think about the unconscious bias of these sheep, of these righteous people that Jesus is pointing out. They haven't even noticed. These people um, that Jesus is going to give them their inheritance are those who have an unconscious bias um, when they see the need and respond. They just do it. They don't, even, they don't realize how ingrained it is in them, but they just do it. I find that really challenging. Without even thinking about it, they behave because they're serving their king. They're so in love with their king and all that he's done for them. So whatever, whenever, however, no matter the cost, unconsciously, without even thinking, they are giving and loving others, particularly the least. And in that, what they've discovered is what it means to be like Jesus. But they don't realize it, but they're doing it. Just as Jesus came to serve the poor and the marginalized, just as he identified with the sick and the rejected and the poor, so we who follow him are called to do the same. It's that grace of God in again, isn't it? The grace of God working in us, transforming our lives that we might live for others. So we no longer live for self, no longer trying to impress people by the way we live. But we love because we have been loved. We serve because we have been served. We bless because we have been blessed. And then we discover that the one who has rescued us and given us everything, the glory of heaven, has come to serve rather than be served. When we truly understand the sacrifice of the Son of Man, the Shepherd, the King, then we will be able to love as he loved, to serve as he served. So when you give to Edith's Hope, when you support a child-headed family, when you cook a meal for a new parent in church, when you help someone move home or you support a grieving family, when you host a, a visiting um, mission partner or you give somebody a lift to hospital, Jesus says, you did it for me. You did it for me. But you know, we can't stop there, can we? We can't stop there. As we live out this call to share the good news with our, with our good deeds, they, they won't be limited just to in-house, will they? We won't just keep the good news to ourselves. We, like Jesus, have been given the same commission that Jesus was given to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to prisoners, to re recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free. And going back to last week in Matthew, he says, as we do that, we'll point people to our Savior. As we love as Jesus loved, we will point people to our Savior. And isn't that what we long to do? But, you know, Jesus finishes this scene with a very sobering thought, and we can't avoid it. We need to hear it. So I'm just going to read verses 41 and 42 again. Then he will say to those on his left, who are as equally surprised as the ones on his right, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison, and you did not look after me. I don't know about you, but I don't want to hear those words from Jesus when I meet him, do you? I have a prayer, and my prayer is that for each of us, we will grow more deeply aware. Or perhaps for you today, for the first time as you hear these words, 
you'll come to understand the incredible truth about Jesus. King Jesus, who gave up everything for you, who gave up everything for me. You know, he gave up everything to satisfy that deep hunger that we have in our hearts. He gave up everything to quench that thirst that we have inside us for living water. He gave up everything so that you and I could be invited into his presence and into his home. He gave up everything so that we could take off those filthy rags of sin and be clothed in righteousness. He gave up everything when he died on the cross for you and for me to release us from that prison of guilt and shame. He's opened our eyes. He set us free. When we grasp everything that he has done for us, don't we long to live as he has shown to us? You know, we have such an inheritance, don't we? There's such an inheritance, Jesus says here, for those who love and serve the king. So I pray that we may be those who have an unconscious bias of seeing and responding to the least of these. That we do it so naturally because we're so in love with our saviour who's given everything with us, for us. Without even a second thought, maybe. You know, as I was reading, and I haven't thought to say this, but as I was reading um, that last bit, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and the angels. You know, that wasn't prepared for us. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want one of us to perish. He longs that everyone will have eternal life. And I just wonder, because God just prompted me with that, I need to say it out loud that you maybe need to hear that today, that God longs for you to be, to know him as your saviour, as your king, as your friend, as your shepherd. Shall we pray together? Father, your word's not always easy, but we thank you for it because you speak truth into our lives that changes our lives for eternity. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that has been challenged because of what has been of what they've heard, that you are a loving God who offers forgiveness and invites us to know your forgiveness and your love because of Jesus. That perhaps today they might discover what it means to know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as their friend and saviour. But Father, I pray for each one of us that we might hear this challenge to so understand all that you've done for us that we... Our lives are transformed and we live to honour you. We live to glorify you. We live with our eyes open to the least, to the lost, to the lonely. And in them, we see the face of our Saviour as we serve. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, to the music group and Katia, we're going to use the song God I Look to You um, to close with. God I look to you, I won't be overwhelmed. Give me vision to see the things like you do. God I look to you, you're in where my help comes from. Give me wisdom, you know just what to do. Shall we stand?
Yes, Lord, we say together that you are our strength. Thank you, Lord, that you are our shield. Thank you, Lord, that we can say together that you are the rock upon whom we will stand and continue to stand. Lord, thank you that forever, for all of our days, we will love you, our Lord and our God. Let's just sing together one more time. And I will love you, Lord, my strength. And I will love you, Lord, my strength. And I will love you, Lord, my shield. And I will love you, Lord, my rock. Forever, all my days, I will love you, Lord. Would you go now in the peace of God to love him, to serve him, and to make him known in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do uh, be seated. Thank you so much for being with us today. I really feel prompted and stirred this morning that if uh, Kaiser or add-on to the end of her sermon was for you today, that today's the day for you to trust Jesus. Come and have a quick chat. Come and talk to Kay. Since she said it, she can uh, have the privilege of chatting it through and exploring it with you. Have a great rest of your day. And don't forget, there are chocolates here. Uh, Take them, give them out, do nice things with them uh, to whoever you might meet. Come and grab some from the front and I'll take some from the door uh, as well. God bless you all. Have a great day.